Let's pray, and we'll ask God for his help. Please join me as we pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time that we've been able to spend in this book of 1 Corinthians. We pray that we won't be um, like that man in the book of James who looks in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like. Help us instead as we look at your word to be changed by it. Help us to understand what your word says and to put it into practice in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've come to the last of our 21-week series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, five months of your life that I've made you spend on this book. It's quite a long time, isn't it? Five months. In fact, the problem with it being uh, for five months is that you kind of forget what happened five months ago. Uh, so, so let me give you a quick overview. I'm going to ask lots of questions. I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but just see if you can answer in your head the kinds of questions as we do a bit of an overview of uh, this book of 1 Corinthians. So first four chapters... Do you remember? Can you remember what the issue was in the first four chapters? Uh, there were divisions. Do you remember in the Corinthian church? Uh, we saw it chapter 1, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. There were these divisions in the church. Behind those divisions was another issue. Do you remember what it was? The Corinthians, they were wanting to look good in the eyes of the world. They were wanting uh, the world to see them as being influential and intelligent and powerful. That's why they're getting into these competing groups and where they're kind of dropping the names of, uh, of famous Christian leaders. So Paul, in the first four chapters, addresses the deeper issue. He says the gospel message, the Christian message... It's not about making us look good. No, no. The gospel is the message, do you remember? The message of Christ crucified. From the world's perspective, that is a foolish, weak, unpopular message preached to foolish, weak, unpopular people by foolish, weak, unpopular preachers. Paul's point for the Corinthian Christians is this. If you want to be seen as wise and strong and popular in the eyes of the world, you've joined the wrong religion. You've joined the religion of a dead Messiah. Uh, Paul calls on the Corinthians, stop worrying about striving for popularity. No, no, embrace the foolishness of the gospel. That was chapters 1 to 4. Chapters 5 to 7. A few matters that were being dealt with there. Do you remember beginning of chapter 5, there was the issue of litigation. Paul says most context, that's not appropriate. But then for the rest of uh, chapters 5, 6, 7, it's basically about issues to do with sex and marriage. Uh, Paul calls on the Corinthians to be sexually pure. He says that as Christians, we're not just united with our souls to Jesus, we're united body and soul to Jesus. Jesus owns not just our souls, Jesus cares not just about our souls, he cares for our bodies as well. Sexual immorality is what we're saved from. From, not for. Our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality, but for Jesus. And so for the Corinthians, and also for us, Paul calls on us to embrace either celibate singleness or else marriage. Chapters 8 to 10. Do you remember what chapters 8 to 10 were about? It was, uh, do you remember the meat sacrifice to idols issue? Do you remember that one? Should uh, Christians eat meat sacrificed to idols? Paul says two principles that you need to keep in mind. Can you remember what the principles were? Two principles you need to keep in mind. There was the knowledge and the love. Knowledge and love. So knowledge. 
You need to know whether it's appropriate for you to do something. Know whether it's sin or not. In the case of eating meat sacrificed to idols, it's not sinful in itself. It's fine. That's not the end. Knowledge and love. The love principle. When you do something, you need to do it in a way that will be loving to other people. You don't want to harm them. You don't want to push them away from Jesus. You want to, pe- you want to help people to trust Jesus and be saved. And so, with meat sacrificed to idols, you've got to be very careful of your context, careful of who you're doing it with, careful of the impact that you will have. And Paul finishes chapter 10 by saying that this principle of knowledge and love is not just um, for any meat sacrificed to idols. It's actually a way to think about everything that we do as Christians. Do we know that we can do it? Can we do it in love to other people? Paul says, end of chapter 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, from not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. That was chapters 8 to 10. Chapters 11 to 14, we're dealing with issues around um, spiritual gifts and church. Beginning of chapter 11 was about men and women praying and prophesying, doing that appropriately. Second half of chapter 11 was the, um, the Lord's Supper, the way the Corinthians were conducting the Lord's Supper. And then 12 to 14 was all that stuff about tongues and prophecy and, and what you should do in church. Do you remember the pictures? Paul sets up the four principles, the four foundations. So the first principle was, um, what is spirituality? And it's not, about, um, it's not about ecstatic experiences or singing for a long period of time or anything like that. True spirituality is, do you remember the picture? The crown? It's trusting and obeying Jesus as your king. The second foundation was about why serve in church? Why use your gifts? Why, why work for, for God? And uh, do you remember the picture? How we work for the common good. third principle was about the nature of the church. Do you remember the picture? The picture of the, of the body. The church is like a body. We're all different, but we all are united and together play our part in the building of Christ's body. And then the final foundation, the best way to live, do you remember the, do you remember the picture? The way of love. So put it all together, and Paul comes up with a very simple test. How do you know whether you should do something in church? Answer, is it, do you remember the word? edifying edifying it does it strengthen the church in christ does it build the church up and in order to be edifying there are two things you need in order to be edifying you need to be intelligible people have to understand you and you need to be orderly needs to be done in a fitting and orderly way chapters 11 to 14 chapter 15 do you remember the issue uh some of the corinthians they don't think that there'll be a resurrection from the dead paul says you're wrong Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's fundamental to the gospel. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And because of who he is, because he's the the first fruits, because he's the new Adam, because he's the Messiah and, and the Son of Man, because of who Jesus is, his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. The fact that he's raised from the dead means that we will be raised from the dead as well. There's five months of your life all squashed in together. And so... Paul says, this is where he finishes, chapter 15, because of all this, because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, because of the nature of the gospel, because we'll be resurrected, he says, our labour in the Lord is not in vain. The things that we do for Jesus, helping other people put their trust in him, 
helping other people stick with Jesus, helping other people, encouraging other people to, to live with Jesus as their Lord, that will last forever. Sounds great. But for many of us, there's a, there's a problem. I mean, you look at Paul, and for him, sharing the message of Jesus is everything. The bloke is a missionary. He's travelling the world, telling people about Jesus day and night. He's, he, he's labouring for Jesus. But for us, I mean, that, that's not the majority of our lives, is it? The majority of our lives, we're not talking about Jesus. We spend most of our lives, spend most of our lives just working to earn a living. We spend our time raising children or, or, or caring for parents. or The vast majority of our time is consumed necessarily by ordinary earthly stuff. This idea of giving ourselves wholly to the work of the Lord makes sense, but just seems a bit removed from reality. It only seems to apply to those people who are lucky enough to get paid to do it. And there are people... There are people who make us feel guilty about the way we live. They say we should give up our day job, stop wasting our lives, get out there and spend every day talking to people about Jesus. Some of us can feel a bit like second-class citizens in God's kingdom. We feel a bit guilty that we're not kind of really being God's servant, we're just living ordinary lives. It's all a bit unspectacular. Sure, we get that the gospel is vital. We get that there'll be a resurrection. We'll get, we, we get that what happens for Jesus stands forever. We get that serving Jesus, telling people about Jesus. That, but honestly, what, what can we do? We're not Paul. We're not out there on the front lines. We don't have the, the gifts to do that. We're not really brave enough to do that. We, we, don't have the, we don't have the faith to do that kind of thing. In our little ordinary lives, we don't seem to be having much impact for God's kingdom it all feels a bit kind of out of our league a bit unrealistic do you know what that's why I love this last chapter of 1 Corinthians in this last chapter Paul he talks about his own plans and says a few other things gives some instructions and some greetings but all the way through he's telling the Corinthians how they can play their part all the way through, all the way through he's talking to the Corinthians about how they where they are in their lives can participate in the magnificent work of God in this, in this world. He, he takes them from their lives and points them to world Christianity, the work of the gospel in the world. Let's have a look together. Paul starts off. He starts off by addressing the issue of a collection of money that he's taking up. Um, it's a collection for the Jewish Christian churches in Jerusalem. Now, we seem to think it's, perhaps we don't think it's all that important. In fact, this was incredibly significant in the early church. Uh, the people in Jerusalem, they'd been doing it really tough. Jerusalem had been through some famines and stuff like that. And the Jewish Christians, because they'd become Christians, they weren't being supported by their Jewish family and friends anymore. They were really suffering. Paul sees a great opportunity for the Gentile, the non-Jewish Christian churches. If the Gentiles will take up a collection to help the Jewish Christians, that's going to have all kinds of benefits. Uh, firstly, it'll be really good for the Jewish Christians. They, they need the help. But also it's going to just change the way they think. They're going to go, well, it's not our non-Jewish friends and family who are helping us anymore. It's these Gentile Christians. It's this kind of change of allegiance, change of loyalty. Suddenly it's not about 
family ties, the Christian, the Christian tie actually becomes stronger. It helps them to accept the Gentile churches as equals in Christ. It's an excellent way to encourage unity among Jewish and Gentile churches. And for the Gentile churches, Paul says in Romans 15, he says it's a great way to say thanks. Say, thank you, Jewish Christian churches, for giving us Jesus, for giving us the message of the gospel. It's a very important collection. It's an important collection for the worldwide spread of the gospel and for the unity of the worldwide church. And Paul wants the Corinthians to get involved. What he doesn't want is this. He doesn't want them to listen to Warren's announcement about it week after week after week after week and forget about it until finally the, the, the day for the collection ha- actually ha- happens and then, they, oh, oh yes, let me just fun, fumble around in my pocket and see if I've got any money for those, uh, for those Jewish Christians. No, no. He wants them to give generously. He wants them to, to, to plan for it. And so he encourages them, set aside money week after week after week in preparation. And, and he tells them how the collection is going to be handled. He, he, he makes very clear and very transparent arrangements to make sure that this collection will go where it's supposed to go. Have a look with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1. Now about the collection for God's people, literally, the collection for the saints. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they'll accompany me. In the next section, Paul talks a bit about his travel plans to the Corinthians, also the travel plans of his co-workers, Timothy and Apollos. First, he talks about himself. Paul, as he's writing this letter, is in a place called Ephesus, it's in modern Turkey. Uh, he is there working hard to share the gospel despite strong opposition. He says that he hopes to come and visit the Corinthians to encourage them, but also, you notice, he, he, wants, them, he wants them to help him and support him on his mission. So he informs them of his plans, no doubt, so they can pray for him, and he wants them to play their part by helping him when he's there. Verse 5. Verse 5. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I'll be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey, wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I have to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Paul then talks about his co-worker Timothy. He says, Timothy might come to Corinth. And same thing again. He says, if he comes, help him out. Make sure he's looked after. Verse 10. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear. Well, he's with you, for he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me I'm expecting him, along with the brothers. Next, Paul talks about his co-worker, Apollos. Apollos had spent a lot of time in Corinth, and you may remember from back, to, back in chapters 1 to 4 that some people were trying to pit Apollos against Paul. You know, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Paul. Paul's not interested in any of that nonsense. He's perfectly happy for Apollos to go back to the church. In fact, he's encouraged him to go back to the church. He's not jealous of him or anything like that. But he says Apollos is busy doing mission in other places at the moment. Uh, verse 12... Now, about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. 
He's quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Now in the next section, Paul addresses the Corinthians again and talks to them about being Christians where they are, what that's going to look like. He says you've got to be brave, you've got to be strong. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, you've got to stand up and stand out for Jesus. But he says not not in a rude way or an arrogant way. He says do it in love, do everything in love. Think carefully about how you can best be winsome, win people for the gospel. Verse 13. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. Uh, Paul then talks about how they should be involved in their local church. He says you need to get on board with local leadership. Submit to tried and true leaders like the household of Stephanus. Paul wants them to, to, to play their part on the team of their local church. Verse 15. 15. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. Get in, play your part. Um, Paul then talks about some of the Corinthians who actually have given up their day jobs. They've given up their day jobs, they've left Corinth, and they've come to help Paul in Ephesus. They've headed off on the mission field. Paul says they deserve to be recognised for what they've done. Verse 17. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaeus arrived in Ephesus because they have supplied what was lacking from you, your help and presence, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Paul then sends greetings from some people in churches around Ephesus, verse 19. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. So does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And then to finish the letter, Paul stops dictating. He's been dictating the letter right through. Someone else has been writing it down. He stops dictating. He picks up Aquila himself and he starts writing. He writes this last bit himself. He calls on Jesus to curse those who reject him. He asks Jesus to return and he prays that Jesus will show grace and save the Corinthians. Verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. If you think about it, that That's actually the context for our whole Christian lives, isn't it? Jesus is going to come back. Those who reject him will face curse. Those who accept him will receive the grace of God. That's the eternal context that we live in as Christians. Paul finishes by sending his love. Notice to whom he sends his love. It's not just to the people who say, I follow Paul. No, no, he sends his love to all of them. Verse 24. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay, can you see what's here then in this passage? Kind of bits and pieces. Paul's telling the Corinthians what's happening with him, telling them, um, sending greetings, that kind of thing. But right the way through is telling them how they can play their part in God's work in this world. All right. 
Let's think about applying the passage. And noticing in the context, Jesus is coming back. Those who trust him will receive grace. Those who reject him will receive curse. That is the eternal future that's before us. That is why, again, we should be doing the work of the Lord. That is why we should be serving Jesus, by helping to get the gospel out into this world. But notice what Paul doesn't say here. He doesn't say, Therefore, I want you all to give up your day jobs, head off to more college, and come and help at Ephesus. No, no. He shows them how they, in their lives, their ordinary so-called lives, where they are in Corinth, how they can play their role in God's mission in the world. That's why I say I love how realistic this is. Although having said that, I just can't resist at this point. I should say this before I go on. Paul is not opposed to people dropping everything and heading off on the mission field. In fact, did you notice, he says the Corinthians should recognise those who have done exactly that. And the fact is, I don't want to let you off too easy. Because there are plenty of people here today who have the gifts to be effective in full-time vocational gospel ministry. And I reckon it is right and good that you should be hassled about that consistently. I was talking to a bloke called Carl Mattai the other day. Carl heads up the campus Bible study at University of New South Wales. And he was telling me that he deals with hundreds and hundreds of capable university students. And he told me, he told me around about half of them are from Asian backgrounds. But he said, I can't remember the exact figure, but he said, it's only about 20% or less of the people who end up going to the ministry training strategy and, uh, and going into Bible college and into ministry, only about 20% or less are from an Asian background. He says it is one of the biggest tragedies of Sydney Christianity. In many ways, these young Asian university students are the most gifted, the most equipped for ministry. They are capable. They are intelligent and they already understand what it is to cross cultures because they deal with their parents and their grandparents. But the vast majority of them will not pursue full-time ministry. Why not? Because of their parents' expectations. Their parents want them to be doctors and lawyers and dentists. And they don't have the guts to go against what their parents want. Do you know what? I wonder what it's going to be like for our kids. Tiger mums, tiger dads. I wonder what we are hoping for our children. I wonder what we're going to be encouraging them to do. I wonder, think, move yourself forward and think you're now the grandparent boasting about your children and grandchildren to your friends in the bowling club or mahjong club or whatever it is. Okay? <laughs> Are you ready to boast about them being missionaries in poverty somewhere or really would you rather they be doctors and lawyers and dentists? Although I don't want to let you off the hook either. I remember one time I was talking to our missionary uh, Andrew Lubbock and I said to him, oh, you know, the thing about people at Chatswood, they're pretty much concreted into their lives. You know, they've got families, they've got mortgages, they can't just drop everything ahead on the mission field. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to target their children Andrew said to me, he said, brother, let me challenge you on that. He said, you have got a congregation full of gifted, capable people with more money than they know what to do with. 
There is no good reason why plenty of them should not give up their day jobs, take early retirement and head off on the mission field. He said, don't stop harassing them. As uncomfortable as that is, I think he's right. And I'm not going to stop harassing you. I hope you do feel the challenge not to just get caught up with the comforts and eases of this life. Having said all of that, it's exactly the opposite point of what I'm trying to say from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. That is not what Paul does here. He doesn't tell them that they have to give up their day jobs and come on mission to Ephesus. Because realistically, for most of them, it's not going to happen. Instead, he gives these very realistic instructions to the godly, faithful Christians who will stay home in Corinth. So, to finish, let let me me, me paint a picture for you, a a word picture. Here's a picture, based on 1 1 Corinthians chapter 16, of a picture of faithful, godly Christians who stay home at Chatswood but impact the world. First thing, first thing about these godly, faithful Chatswood Christians, they get their context. They get that Jesus is coming back. They get that eternity is at stake. They get that they're helping people with their legal problems is great and fixing people medically is good and fixing their computers is fine, but that people have much bigger problems and they need Jesus. And so, verse 13, what are they like? They are brave. They are not wimpish, keeping their heads down, looking like everybody else around them. They don't keep silent when they should speak up. Everyone at their work, everyone at their school, everyone at their university knows that they are Christians. They're the kind of people that people say, I really like them, I just wish they'd shut up about Jesus. They bravely tell the other mums at school or mother's group about Jesus. They bravely stand firm and stand out for Jesus wherever they are. But just just notice verse 14, though. It's not an ugly or a rude thing. Do you know what I mean? They're not at war with the world. Oh, these homosexuals and the the society is going to the dogs. No, no, no. no. They're not sour. They're not arrogant. They they don't hate and oppose everyone around them. There's a... I mean, it's not a Bible word, but there's a softness maybe about them. Kind of winsomeness. They love the people in their lives and they're brave and they won't shut up about Jesus but people know that they love them somehow through that. They want to see people saved. Brave but loving. These Chatswood Christians. What else, what else do these ordinary Chatswood Christians do? Well, verses 15 to 16, they get involved in their local church. They don't stay out on the fringes. They're not just passengers They get on board with local leadership. They join in the team. They get in. They serve. How can I help? How can I be involved? In the work of the local church. What else? Verses 17 to 18. 17 to 18. They recognise and they support those people who do go out from our church on mission. They're very interested in our student ministers. Both when they're here and when they go. Encouraging them, supporting them. They support members of our church who head off on short-term missions or or Year 13 or something like that. Uh, They keep in touch with Chandra Smith from our church, now in Ecuador, or or the Johnson family in Dunedin. That's in New Zealand, not Germany. 
Uh, they, they, they know Sarah Weber and they're, they're, they're keeping in touch with Sarah because she's gone from our church to serve as a missionary and, and we want to take an interest and get involved and, and recognise them. Now, what else do these godly chats with Christians look like? Uh, they've got an interest in wider world mission, especially mission to the Jews, verses 1 to 4. Uh, Christian witness to Israel should always be the first mission that we support. Uh, you'd be very excited to know that Audric Sajono is heading on a short-term mission to Israel soon with uh, Love Israel. Very exciting. I pray that when the time comes and we learn about it, that we'll generously support him in prayer and finance. Of course, it's not just mission to the Jews, though. We should be interested in prayerfully and financially supporting all our missionaries. Get the newsletters. Pray about it. Um, give in a planned way to Mission Sunday. Don't ignore the announcements for months and months and, and then fumble in your pocket on the day. No, no, prepare in advance for Mission Sunday. Do you get the picture of these ordinary Christians? In their own lives, they are brave and loving. They're invested in their local church, doing what they can. They are interested and involved in world mission, prayerfully, financially. Do you know what? That's not an unrealistic picture, is it? That's, 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 that's not ridiculous or out of our league. That's, that's something that you could do. That's something that you could be, isn't it? Active involved in your own life, involved in your local church, interested and invested in world mission. Sure, these ordinary Christians, they spend their days working and looking after their family and so on, but they're trying to bring Jesus into every aspect of their lives and they're trying to, 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 to radiate Jesus out from every aspect of their lives. I don't reckon that's a second-class Christian. I reckon that is a person worth being don't you? You could be this person. So friends, let's do it. Let's work hard from where we are in our lives to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that we in our little lives are part of the extraordinary and enormous thing that you are doing in this world. Please help us to bravely and lovingly take our part in our own everyday lives, in our church, and in the wider work of the gospel in this world. Help us to be the kind of brave, faithful Christians that Paul was calling on the Corinthians to be in chapter 16. We pray that you'd help us to do this by the power of your spirit. And we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.